0: like every time i come to preach anymore i come up with like a bible and two devices and six other things and eventually i'm going to come up with i don't know a stool to sit on it gets a little bit much uh, so forgive me as i set some stuff around here um, this morning is going to be a little bit different uh, in that you know typically at griggs we we tend to preach what's called expositionally We tend to go verse by verse, line by line, through a book, which is great. Uh, That is our typical pattern, except uh, recently I think we've been doing a more topical series, so it's a little bit different anyways. This is going to throw you off a little bit, because I am not exactly just preaching. I'm also sort of giving a testimony, and in one sense I am almost giving like a missionary update, even though I'm not a missionary. Uh, So there's a lot going on this morning. So forgive me if it seems like I'm jumping around a lot. Uh, We are going to start off uh, with what I would consider more of a testimony and then move into scripture. I believe most of you, if not all of you by now, know that Natalie and I are moving uh, within When are we moving? A week from today, we are moving. And it's been heartbreaking for us to leave Griggs, but at the same time, we have felt pull to be uh, where we are moving to, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of why we even came to Griggs and work our way through that so that uh, it didn't just seem like some random guy is talking for an hour about why he's leaving. And I'm not going to talk for an hour, by the way. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't want to just leave off by um, you know, explaining where we're going without explaining where we have been. So uh, most of you, well, I don't know, maybe a small portion of you know why we came here. Uh, so Natalie and I moved to Greenville in 2015, about five years ago. And the whole purpose was to get our education and return to Pennsylvania. By the way, is this battery dying or something? It's cutting in and out for me. Yeah. (laughs) But anyways, so we moved here in 2015. We got connected with Palmetto Baptist and uh, we uh, we just jumped straight into our schoolwork. I spent uh, quite a bit of time doing stuff at Bob Jones that kind of bored me, and Natalie spent quite a bit of time doing stuff at North Greenville that kind of bored her. And we plugged away at our degrees. Uh, we like I said, we plugged into uh, Palmetto. We were never really quite like involved with everything. Uh, she sang in either the choir or the worship team, because those are separate things there, and I can't remember which one she did now. Uh, she sang, and I was involved with her pastoral training ministry. Um, for I, I think we were there for two and a half years, and uh, Mitch came and preached at Palmetto. And funny thing is, I actually wasn't there that day. <laughs> I have no idea what he said that day. But Natalie was there, and she came home that afternoon and told me that we should really check out this small church on the uh, west side of Greenville. Well, are we on the west side of Greenville? We're kind of there. And see if we can offer any help. So uh, because of a number of reasons, uh, you know, our lack of really connectedness in Palmetto, uh, Natalie's desire to be in a smaller church, I don't know if you know this, Palmetto's kind of big, uh, Griggs is not as big, so uh, Natalie uh, loves smaller churches. And the ability to serve uh, was some of our key decision, well, key factors for our decision. So we came to Griggs as part of a group. Uh, some of that group is still here, just a handful of you guys. Uh, the rest of them, and that's not like talking down on the ones that went back, that was the agreement that after, I can't remember if it was six months or 12 months, if they felt that they should go back to palmetto they should well some of us stuck around and we have really rooted ourselves into the church and after all this time of serving at griggs working on degrees and occasionally driving to pennsylvania and preaching a ton and teaching a ton up there uh, and I I did a wedding one year up there, and I've done all these other things in Pennsylvania. We finally decided that it is time for us to go back to Pennsylvania full-time. Now, some of you, uh, if you've heard any of our stories, recognize that that area of Pennsylvania is very rural. Uh, It is not a big city. We're not moving to Pittsburgh, and we're not moving to Philadelphia. It is, quite frankly, the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And you might be wondering why we would move to a place like that. And I will explain that closer towards the end of this message. But because I'm preaching, I feel desperately that it is desperately necessary for me to jump into Scripture. So we'll do that first. 1 Corinthians 1. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there. 1 Corinthians 1. While you're turning there, I'll give you some background information. I think Pastor Mitch preached from 1 Corinthians last week, so you might actually already have some of this. If so, I don't know, maybe you forgot or something. Uh, Either way, here's some background information. Corinth is the city. It's located on this narrow stretch of land that connects southern Greece with uh, the mainland. It's a very strategic location if you are planning on conquering or if you are simply planning on transporting goods around. Uh, And because of that reason, because of the location, Corinth was, I would say, almost excessively wealthy in some senses. They had money, they had culture, they have everything that you think of. When you think of a large metropolitan city, and it was large, they estimate anywhere between 400,000 to 700,000 people lived in Corinth, which, if that means nothing to you, let me put it in this way, it is roughly the size of Raleigh, North Carolina to the high end being the size of Washington, D.C. So it's, it's a rather large city, it's huge. And like I said, uh, it is a major trade route. And because of that, the city has a large mix of different ethnic groups. It has a large mix of cultural and religious influence. And quite frankly, uh, cities that are very large with tourism and trade usually have a reputation, and they did have a reputation, and it wasn't pleasant. Their reputation is this, and this is from the New American Commentary. Like other ancient Greek cities, Corinth was notoriously wicked, given over to idolatry, sexual immorality, and other sins that was their reputation, and it wasn't very great. All of this to make a simple statement that the church that is in Corinth is going to struggle with similar issues that the city struggles with, because they're going to struggle with the same issues that the people around them struggle with. So if you study through 1 Corinthians and you study closely, you'll find a number of different things. You'll see Paul addressing issues of wisdom, which we'll see a little bit this morning. You'll see him addressing issues of church leadership, uh, issues of sexual immorality, issues of idolatry, issues of marriage, issues of divorce, all of that. Uh, Paul hits all of those topics because, as he mentions early on, he receives a report from someone about what's happening in the church. Keep all that in mind as we read through the passage. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for all that you do for us. We're thankful for your love and your mercy and the continuous grace that you show us. We're thankful that we have an opportunity to study your word, and I pray that you give me every word that I speak. I pray that you I get glory out of every word that I speak, and I pray that I am faithful to your text. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we study this passage, we're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to look at it uh, starting in verses 17 to 18, and that will point us towards the cross. That's really what 17 and 18 does. It will point us to the cross, and it points us away from worldly wisdom. The second part is verses 19 through 25. It speaks of the foolishness of worldly wisdom, and it reminds us that God's wisdom and God's strength is far greater than our own. And the third part that we'll look at this evening, well, this morning, sorry, I'm all mixed up right now, verses 26 through 31 will show us the instruments that God chooses, which, by the way, the instruments that he chooses to use are us, Uh, Quite frankly, verses 26 through 31 will tell us that we're kind of insignificant in certain respects. But we'll get there when we get there. Uh, Don't think that's offensive. It is not. All of this should push us to be uh, understanding that it is the cross in Jesus Christ that provides our unity. It may help you to remember that Paul is writing to a church that is divided over their leadership. Remember in verses 10 through 16 that Paul makes the statement that there should be no divisions amongst them, that they ought to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And he mentions these divisions about leadership within the church, and he draws them back to Jesus. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And now in verse 17 through 18, he rejects those divisions... And he points them back to Jesus, and he continuously does that throughout the whole book. Let's read again verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Paul starts with this statement that he was sent to Corinth not to baptize people. And let me be clear, he is not undermining baptism. Baptism is still a good thing. Uh, We are still supposed to baptize people, even to this day, which most of you in this room have probably been baptized, and that's great. Paul is not downgrading baptism. Baptism is a good thing. What he is simply saying is when he went to Corinth, He didn't go to just baptize people. He went to preach. And he went to preach one specific thing. He went to preach the gospel of Jesus. Put another way, Paul's purpose in Corinth was not simply to baptize. His purpose in Corinth is to preach. Because we're jumping into this passage in the middle of his statement, it kind of sounds a little odd, but remember, in Corinth, one of the issues that they face is this constant desire to be people of position and people of power. They want authority and they want control. It typically happens when, uh, if, you, if you pay attention as you read 1 Corinthians, later on one of the big issues that they have is during the Lord's Supper, how the, the wealthier families would look down on the poorer families. The whole church struggles with this idea of being better than another person. That extends to the church, and for some people, the person who baptized them was an important thing. In our modern culture, it would be like if Mitch baptized you or if I baptized you, and they would make a big deal about that. They would think, well, Paul baptized me, so I must be better than you because only you know, Apollos baptized you. Or Cephas baptized you, or some other church uh, leader baptized you, but you're not as important because I got Paul to baptize me. Paul mentions in verse 11 and 12, for it has been reported to me that there is quarreling amongst you. And he makes this statement. What I mean is this. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. The point being that the people were finding their identity on their leadership rather than on Jesus Christ himself. Instead of simply following Jesus, they were determining their worth based off of who their leader was. So in verse 17, Paul isn't downgrading baptism. He's simply making the point that he is thankful, with the exception of a handful of people in Corinth, that he didn't baptize any of them because that was not the purpose of his ministry his intent was to simply preach the gospel and he explains how exactly he does this he explains the methodology that he well sort of the methodology you cannot look at this and learn exactly how paul preached that's not the point but he does say this he says that he preached the gospel not with wisdom of words lest the cross of christ should be made of none effect Excuse me. And we have to stop here for a few minutes to define what exactly the Bible means when it uses the term wisdom of words. We get tripped up a, a little bit about this because of that phrase, because we know that wisdom itself is a good thing. And in fact, the Bible tells us I'm going to spill this everywhere to pray for wisdom. If you remember, James 1 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, He should pray and he should ask God who gives generously to all who ask. Wisdom itself is not bad. So it's really this idea of wisdom of words that Paul is not necessarily condemning, but he, he refuses to do it when he preaches. Some other translations have rendered this as eloquent wisdom or cleverness of speech. And I think that cleverness of speech is probably the best rendering of this, and it has to do with the manner and how Paul spoke. Cleverness of speech is considered to mean, uh, by some commentators, the idea of overly sophisticated preaching. And if you grew up in the church, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've heard someone at some point overly sophisticated preaching overly sophisticated you've heard it and i'm not going to ask you to name names but you have heard it and you know exactly what paul is saying when he says this an early church father makes the statement that the phrase refers to the sophisticated and cultured speech of the high status so so the people who are what we would consider high class, uh, they are the elite group of people. It's that type of speaking. And Paul is saying that he did not utilize that type of speaking for preaching. If we think of it more in our modern term, in our modern culture, it could be the idea of making the gospel sound appealing in ways that it was not meant to sound appealing. What do I mean by this? The gospel in and of itself is appealing to those who actually realize that they're in sin and they need salvation. If we attempt to make the gospel sound appealing to people who don't realize that they are sinners and don't realize that they need a Savior, then we have to edit the gospel to fit what they want. We're changing the way we speak and the way we preach to fit what they want. And that's an issue. Paul is making the statement that he didn't use fancy speaking methods in his preaching. And if we remind ourselves of this division in their church, you uh, know, the I am of Apollos or I am of Paul, it seems to imply that Paul is making the statement that they did not preach in order to win people to themselves. They simply preach to win people to Jesus. They don't want the church to take sides. Because to do so would make the cross of Christ of none effect. Verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Paul makes the point that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. So this is speaking of anyone who's an unbeliever. And let's be honest, we all know unbelievers, at least we should. If, if you don't know any unbelievers at all, you're not getting out there enough, and you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, so you should know unbelievers. Well, to an unbeliever, an average unbeliever, coming to church on a Sunday or on a Wednesday uh, singing songs and listening to someone speak for 30 to 45 minutes sounds utterly absurd. Like, why would you do that? It's just a waste of time, especially if you if you really want to consider it. If you are working 40 hours a week, you know, you're working full-time, why would you want to waste your time doing that instead of just staying home and spending time with your family or uh, doing other what potentially could be good things? The preaching seems ridiculous. and You have to understand that people who don't believe, people that don't have an understanding of the gospel and don't understand the grace that has been given to them, this all just looks ridiculous to them. You also have to consider that in the time period that Paul is writing, the cross itself, did not symbolize the same thing that it symbolizes today. When we think of the cross, what do we think of today? We think of faith, and we think of Jesus. We think of hope. In their time period, do you know what the cross represented? It represented Rome's authoritarian control. Their ability to punish. The fact that they had all power. It was not a symbol of hope then. In fact, it was a symbol that typically meant that you were an utter criminal and you probably deserved what you got. So for a whole belief system to base itself around what happened on a cross would seem absolutely absurd to them. To those that are basing their wisdom on the world, what the world says, what the world does, what they see when they look at us preaching about Jesus dying on a cross, preaching about his death, burial, and resurrection, all they see is a group of people worshiping a man who died as a criminal. But to us, that preaching of the cross is the power of God. To us, the preaching of the cross sets up this huge contrast between earthly wisdom and wor- uh, I'm sorry, worldly earthly wisdom and the gospel. This starts here, and it continues in the next set of verses, starting in verse 19, "For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent." Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews' stumbling block and under the Greeks' foolishness. Paul begins this section by quoting a passage of scripture. It's quoted from Isaiah. And in the passage in Isaiah, God is condemning the Israelites for essentially giving him lip service. Do you know what I mean when I say lip service? They're saying all the right things. They say they worship God. They, uh, in our context, it would be coming to church every week, going through the motions. But not actually meaning any of it in your heart. And Paul is essentially pointing to this time frame when Israel was going through the motions. And the Israelites during this time frame thought that they had everything in life figured out. And you can see that as you study other prophets. They thought they were doing the right things. And Paul makes this comparison and he expounds on it. Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? And for us, you know, honestly some of those words probably mean nothing to you because you don't know what it meant to them so let's look at it in a different way when paul says where is the wise he's probably referring to what are called greek sophists these are the greek teachers they're the ones that would travel around and they would uh... be paid to essentially teach when he states where is the scribe he's referring to the jewish scribes who copied the law so these would be the people that you would go to if you had a question about scripture more than likely they knew where to look because they sat down every day and they copied by hand what the bible said when he states where is the disputer of the world he's probably referring to both of those but he's probably also referring to philosophers you have to consider in this time frame Well, actually, Plato's a little bit before this time frame. But you have philosophers like Plato. You have philosophers like Socrates all teaching. And these are considered the wisest people of the time. These are the smart people. These are the intelligent people. And yet, Paul says, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? This theme of comparing man's wisdom to foolishness continues not only in the passage that we're looking at right now, but it continues later on in 1 Corinthians. Starting in verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Not only has God made foolish the wisdom of the world, but Paul points out that through man's worldly and earthly wisdom, man still did not know God. Which is interesting, because if you study the philosophers and you study philosophy through all the time periods, I think I heard it best stated by Dr. Ron Horton that the history of Western philosophy is the history of mankind trying to make sense of a world without God while God is standing there visibly in their presence. In the world's wisdom, they did not know God. And as mankind sought wisdom, Those that seek wisdom in anything other than God is found out to be foolish. Those that seek wisdom outside of God and Christian belief end up being at odds with God and Christian belief. It seems to heavily imply that God realized just how foolish preaching would seem to people. And he realized just what it would look like. And yet, that is what God chose to use. The world sees preaching as foolishness, and yet it pleases God that people are saved through preaching. Paul expounds on this by contrasting those that believe with unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul makes this statement that Jews demand a sign. And he's separating the Jews from the Gentiles on purpose. So the Jews already have access to God's wisdom, correct? They have the Old Testament. And I don't know if you know this, but you can be saved through the Old Testament alone. So if you uh, have any question about that, you have to remember that there are a number of people listed in Hebrews 11 that were justified by faith without ever reading the New Testament. So they had the ability to seek this wisdom, and yet they wanted to see signs to validate what they saw. They had the Old Testament, but they wanted to see more, and they never quite understood where they fit in the history of salvation because they simply missed the point. They just didn't understand their scripture well enough, and they missed perhaps the biggest sign possible the cross, the Messiah. How terrible would that be later on in the afterlife to realize that you completely missed the point? The Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament. Uh, Well, I mean, they kind of did. They could have went to their Jewish friends, but they did not. So the Gentile or the Greeks go on seeking what brings success in life today. So they are seeking success in politics, seeking success in law, philosophy, pretty much anything that you can do today. And this is more of a side note, but I hope that you can see a parallel to our lives today. So if you think of it clearly, how many times do we act like unbelieving Jews who have everything set before them, and yet we still seek for a sign And we still look for random things to happen. Despite having complete access to what God has given us in Scripture, we act as if we can't trust him because we haven't seen those signs. How often are we acting like these Gentile Greeks who seek what brings success in life through our work, through uh, whatever we do in life, through uh, well, even if you really think about it, you can elevate your family above God, and you can elevate your friends above God. You can elevate your jobs above God. And all of those things to the world are wise. None of those things are necessarily bad. But if we elevate those things above God and we don't see God, we've missed the point. The unbeliever seeks signs and worldly wisdom, but we have direct access to God and, in turn, direct access to his word, direct access to his wisdom, which, by the way, again, just a reminder his wisdom is greater than ours. But we typically don't act like it. Now, in our particular section, we're ending with these last two sentences in verses 26 through 31. But Paul actually continues this train of thought all the way through chapter 2. So you should read that when you get home. It would be great for you to do so. Paul ends this paragraph with this thought. For ye see, this is verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption." that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul ends this paragraph in a way that honestly, if you, it might actually sound a little insulting. If you, if you read this and you're thinking, I'm just trying to serve God, and then you read this, and it says, well, God doesn't choose those that are necessarily smart, and God doesn't choose people who are necessarily the strongest. God chooses the weak, and God chooses uh, what he says base, which is a great way to say that you're simple. Uh, and it could sound very insulting to all of us, but it's not meant to be insulting. It's not meant to be insulting whatsoever. So let me explain this. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things to confound the wise, and God chose the weak things to confound the mighty. He chooses the base and the simple things of the world and things which the world despises. And he does that on purpose. is in verse 29 that no flesh should glory in his presence. I like the way the ESV renders that. So that no human might boast in the presence of God. In other words, God has specifically chosen people who to the world, in worldly wisdom, they seem completely and utterly unqualified. But to God, he qualifies them and he uses them And he does it on purpose to prevent us from thinking that it's all about us. So if things go well and the church grows, well it has nothing to do with me and it has nothing to do with Mitch. It's all God. If our families all come to Jesus, and I'm talking about our children, all come to Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with God. If We happen to witness a huge revival, like the revivals of the Great Awakening and the Welsh revivals. It has nothing to do with one person, which, by the way, we tend to uh, give Jonathan Edwards a ton of credit, and I think he would agree with me on this point. It had nothing to do with him, and it all had to do with what God was doing through him. Paul ends with this statement in verses 30 and 31, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Because of him, we are in Jesus Christ. And what we realize when we are in Jesus Christ is that the apparent foolishness of the gospel what the world thinks is foolish is actually where true wisdom starts. Some take the terms righteousness, sanctification, and redemption as separate entities, but I tend to agree with people like Jonathan Edwards and Leon Morris, who are much smarter than I am, that these terms are not separate, but they simply explain and expound on what wisdom is and where wisdom is found. It is through wisdom found in our salvation, that we can glorify our Lord and glorify Jesus Christ. Anthony Thistleton, which uh, has an awesome name. If you're looking for baby names, go for Thistleton. He makes this statement concerning these last two verses. As against the obsession with status-seeking and success at Corinth, wisdom is redefined and explicated as receiving the gifts of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, freely bestowed through Christ and derivative from him. It is only that for, our, for Christian believers, hence to glory in their newfound status as righteous, holy, and redeemed, is to glory in the Lord and no other person or thing the whole point that Paul is driving at is that our salvation is the starting point for wisdom. So let me wrap this up. Because I started off talking about Natalie and I moving to Pennsylvania, and then I jumped into this passage talking about wisdom and preaching and a ton of other things. And you're probably sitting there wondering how I could possibly jump from that to this So let me help you with that. I'm going to give you some application pertaining directly to this passage, uh, how you can apply it in your lives today. And then I'm going to explain how exactly it works for us moving back to Pennsylvania. So verses 17 through 18 points us back to the cross, correct? And it is important for us to remember that we're coming into this passage because the Corinthian church was divided. So we can infer then, we can assume that Paul is uh, reuniting or reunifying that church first off based on their common belief in Jesus. So if you are in a divided situation, if you are having difficulties at home, if you are having difficulties at church, remember first what unites us. It is Jesus and his salvation. In the case of the Corinthian church, the divisions within the body has to do with the leadership that they followed. Remember the claims, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. In reality, if you are a believer this morning, you are to be following Jesus. Not me, not Mitch. You follow Jesus, and you do what Jesus says. And hopefully everything that Mitch and I ever do just leads you back to Jesus and the cross and redemption and salvation through him. The same questions that Paul brings up, you know, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? Can apply today. You can ask the same exact questions today concerning the leadership here. Verses 17 through 18 reminds us that Jesus is what brings unity. Which is why that we can have a diverse church with people in different ethnic groups, with different ideas and different thoughts, and yet still worship the same Jesus and still worship the same God and still have unity with one another. Verses 19 through 25 reminds us that worldly wisdom is actually quite foolish and that God's wisdom and God's strength is far greater than what we could even imagine. And I mentioned in this portion of Scripture that despite us having the wisdom of God contained in a book, we tend to still act like the unbelieving Greek and Jews. We tend to look for signs, and we tend to look for these things in order to validate ourselves, and we tend to look for our success in things that are not based in Scripture, or that might even be good things and yet not the most important thing. So think with me. Where in your life are you looking for worldly success? Where in your life are you looking for something that the world is offering rather than looking for God? Where in your life are you seeking for signs rather than trusting in the promises given by God through Jesus in his word? And let me uh, be somewhat clear, this might sound, uh, I might step on toes or something, if you're offended, sorry. It might sound ridiculous uh, that people would look for signs today, but let me remind you that people still take seriously horoscopes, and they still take seriously fortunes, and they still take seriously all of those things, even believers do. And yet we have promises that Jesus made us. And we know that Jesus keeps those promises for us. Why wouldn't we take comfort in that? Lastly, verses 26 through 31 shows us that as instruments used by God to bring about his plan, honestly, we tend to think of ourselves a little too highly when in reality we're kind of insignificant in this aspect. And what I mean to this, don't take it as an insult, take this as a reminder that no matter how good things happen to be, whether the church grows exponentially while you're there or whether uh, your family all comes to Jesus Christ like the first time you ever preach the gospel to your kids, which would be amazing. Uh, whether you change your work culture because you focus on Jesus rather than simply pushing people to work, regardless of what happens, it has nothing to do with you. It's all Jesus working through you. If you lead your small group tonight and they develop closer relationships with each other, Or you simply show the love of Jesus to your neighbor. No matter what, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with Jesus working through you. Which means that none of that actually depends on you. So what I'm trying to get across here is that God does not rely on us in order to accomplish his plans. We are simply privileged to be utilized by him. It is a privilege to be able to preach, and it is a privilege to be able to lead people to him. It is a privilege for us to worship and honor him, for us to grow the church together for him. It is all a privilege that doesn't depend on us. Which means that despite the fact that God really doesn't need us, the simple fact that he still uses us gives us one insight into his character. The simple fact that he doesn't need us and he still chooses to use us shows us just how much he actually loves us and cares about us And wants to have that relationship with us. God loves to use us to bring about his purposes. And God loves to use us to bring glory to his name. Keep that in mind. Uh, I do want to spend just the last minute or so talking about Natalie and I uh, moving. And quite frankly, we don't have a lot of details. So it's not like I can take a lot of time talking about this because in some cases we're kind of just stepping out and just trusting god to do something and in other cases like we have some plans but not really you know they might fall through it's it's all just um... whatever happens happens So, uh... you know which by the way is extremely stressful for people like me who like to have plans uh... it is very stressful and so let me talk about this area that we're moving to it is in rural pennsylvania uh, and when I talk about rural, I have to clarify this, because a lot of people think of you know, small-town America, and the town still has like 15,000 people living in it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about way out there in the middle of nowhere, there's this small little community of about 1,000 people, and that's it. That's how uh, way out there that I'm talking about. And you might be wondering why exactly I would go to a place like that. It's quite simple. They are still people. They still have souls. They still need Jesus Christ. And when you really, like, if you want to talk statistics with me, let me be as quick as I can with this. If there's 2,000 people living in a 15-mile radius, there's maybe 15 good Bible-believing churches, and that's actually way overstating it. There's more like five. Um, Unless every one of those churches has, like, 1,000 people in it, they are not reaching everybody in that community. They're not even close to reaching that many people. And yet, Jesus still loves them. So when I say rural, we're talking about this way out there, middle of nowhere type of place, with a very small amount of actual Bible-believing evangelical churches, As of right now, uh, all of the actual conservative churches that believe in the Bible and believe in inerrancy of scripture and the virgin birth and salvation through faith alone, there there might be four or five of them, and every single one of them are without a pastor. So uh, if the only conservative Bible-believing churches don't have pastors, uh, that is a significant issue for that area. So we are going back to help them, uh, partially help them with pulpit supply, partially to Uh, help serve them in any way possible. Uh, But ultimately, long term, our goal and our hope is to plant a church by Penn State University, Uh, which if you don't know anything about that area, which I don't blame you for, because it also is kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Penn State has this lovely city around it called State College. It's named after the university. It only exists because of Penn State. And it is, I believe, their population has about 80,000 people, so roughly the size of Greenville. When school is in session, Penn State main campus has 45,000 students. So the majority of the year, the city has about 120,000 people. And if you just do a preliminary search of the churches in that area, you will find a list of less than 100. There are less than 100 churches and 120,000 people. So unless every church has over 1,000 people in it, they aren't reaching the majority of the people. So our goal is to go and help in these areas that are lacking, regardless of whether we plant relatively soon or not, or if we never plant, if we just end up in rural Pennsylvania helping. Our goals are similar to Paul's goals in 1 Corinthians. We are going to simply preach the gospel not with lofty speech or worldly wisdom, not with earthly counsel, but with the wisdom of God and with the whole counsel and wisdom of God. We are going to preach Christ crucified. Even if we're ridiculed and insulted, even if no one listens to us, we will still preach. We are going to hopefully help build a strong community of believers in central Pennsylvania and we're going to do, as Paul says in First Thessalonians, which we read this morning, not only share the gospel with them, but share with them in their lives. And we're going to help those believers utilize their gifts to further the kingdom of God. Those are our plans. Uh, we hope that you will partner with us through prayer, particularly prayer. Uh, that is like the big thing, like pray for us. Like The moment you walk out these doors, you get in your car, please say a word of prayer for us. Um, partner with us in that sense we also send a um, like quarterly prayer letter it's like roughly quarterly Uh, we never offered it here because we lived here full-time but we have been sending it for years to our friends and family in other states Uh, if you would want to be a part of that uh, just contact me in some way uh, Facebook or after the service and we would love to send that to you which by the way is it is only through uh, what the usps i refuse to do email stuff so yeah deal with getting an actual letter for a change um i think that's all i have i am going to pray as the worship team comes up and uh we'll sing i don't know a couple songs let's pray heavenly father we're thankful for all that you do for us we're thankful for the time that we've spent at griggs and the awesome people here that are seeking to know you uh, to seeking to grow in your truth and father i pray that you continue to bless this church continue to uh, glorify your name through what they do here and how they reach this neighborhood we pray that you give them more opportunities to reach their neighbors and reach their friends and family for you i pray that you uh, bless the remainder of time that we have this morning that you bring glory and honor to your name alone. We love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen.